We love sharing tips about our favorite running gear with our podcast listeners. One of our favorite running items for as long as we've both been running are our spy belts. Our spy belts, small personal instrument belts, are perfect for carrying anything small with you on your run. That could be your nutrition, your phone, your keys. The best part is that they don't chafe and they don't bounce around. So you don't have to worry while you're on your run. Check out Spy Belt at spyspibelt.com. We are super excited, pun intended, to welcome our newest sponsor, Supergirl. That's S-O-U-P-E-R-G-I-R-L. Supergirl is a kosher women-founded food delivery business. All of their soups are delicious, plant-based, and available for delivery throughout the U.S. except Alaska and Hawaii. Sorry to our Alaskan and Hawaiian listeners. Hopefully that will be delivered to you soon. In the meantime, those of you who want to try Supergirl, they have kindly offered our listeners a 20% discount. Just enter the code RUN20 at checkout to receive 20% off your subscription. I've been a Supergirl subscriber for a number of years. And what's really nice is that you can adjust your subscription depending on what's going on during the week. There's no obligation. You're not locked in for months or a year or anything like that. My favorite soups during the summer are the gazpachos. They are delicious. And uh, I just love their soups. They're healthy, plant-based, kosher. And it's really nice to know you're supporting a local business that ships nationwide. So give Supergirl a try. You won't regret it. And thanks so much to Supergirl for sponsoring our podcast. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Suddenly, we are in August mid-August and we are back in the swing of things even though it's we're in the dog days of summer I think we're both uh our schedules are suddenly picking up with things outside of running and summer and uh how are you doing in your family and your schedules we're just bracing to go back to you know (laughs) as much as I'm excited for uh you know my kids to get back to school and activities I'm remembering, first of all, it's been a really long time since we've had normal school and normal activities. It's been, you know, almost two years. It's been a year and a half of, of, or more of, of no, you know, not like a normal schedule. So starting to think about, you know, carpooling to school and um, after school and just not even getting home until like 7 p.m. and then having to start homework and yeah, bleh, that's how, that's how I feel. So kind of bracing for that and trying to enjoy the last, like, you know, I don't know, 10 days or whatever of, of, uh, of summer. What about you? Well said. So um, my kids started fall sports this week and uh, my oldest, Noah, is a senior. This is his um, final year running cross country and um, his practices are at 6 a.m. So it's kind of fun to um, be up at the same time preparing for our runs. And he now drives himself to practice. He picks up a friend, they go to practice and he comes home in a great mood like we do when we run, even though it's very hard for him to get up and um, he's exhausted by like four o'clock, which is kind of a runner's life, right? Um, So, you know, it's frustrating though. I hope his coaches don't listen to this podcast, but I don't love the schedule that he's on because I feel like every day is a special workout. Hills, 200s, 400s. And finally, after four days in a row, today's Thursday, Thursday, he did an easy run. And so it's hard for me as a coach and also as a mother to see him every night foam rolling and, and, you know, just not foam rolling because like we do it preventatively, but more foam rolling, like, Hey, I'm really sore. And he came in with a base. So, you know, I don't want to go behind the coaches backs and say, Oh, you shouldn't do this. Or, you know, I want to support him and I want to support his coaches, but inside it's hard because you and I really believe in hard, easy, hard, easy. And to have all these hard days in a row is, is hard to watch. So, um, I guess if there are other parents out there, with kids coming in with less of a base too, that to me, that would, that would, um, that would worry me if they weren't coming in with such a great base too. For sure. And, and, you know, I also feel like kids have a hard time sort of moderating themselves. Like if a coach says run your best or run at a hard effort, they're not going to do what an adult 
may be able to do. And, you know, heck, some of our runners have trouble doing this, saying, you know, even though my schedule says to run hard, today I'm not feeling as great, so I'm going to take it a little easier. Like, a kid's not going to do that. So I've just kind of been talking to them, as I've done every year, you have to listen to your body. And even if the coach or your schedule says one thing, if you're not feeling great, pull it back. Um, it's hot. And most importantly, you want to get to the start line, the start of your season healthy. And he's been injured before. So I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to other uh, parents of uh, student athletes, particularly cross country runners. If, if you're new to this or if you're seeing some similar things, don't be afraid to talk to your kid and just make sure that they understand that it's not disrespectful at all to a coach to listen to your body. Um, and certainly if they are experiencing pain versus general soreness, which is something we talk about a lot, um, particularly with our favorite physical therapist, Rachel Miller, general pain is when you can put a palm over the area and it's, I'm sorry, general soreness, when you put a palm over the area and it's like just general, but when you can take your index finger and point and it feels like a bruise, a pain in a very specific area, there's a big difference between the two and you shouldn't run through pain. So um, those are some of the things going on in my house with that. And I'm sure I'm not I alone. I and say too quickly that, you know, I think especially looking at it from a coach's perspective and a coach from a, a cross country team, which could be a hundred, more than a hundred kids. I think um, the onus is on the kids to go to the coach too and say, hey, I'm not feeling great. Like this doesn't feel right to me. And then maybe the coach can modify. You've got to speak up in a group that size when I don't think it's just even you know, physically a possibility for a coach to keep tabs on every single runner. Then, you know, I think that's probably another bit of advice that I would give to, to parents is, you know, have your kid, your kid themselves, because if you're in high school, you're old enough to go to the coach and have a conversation with the coach to say like, Hey, this isn't working. I'm going to ease up or, you know, I feel like I need to ease up and then, and work with the coach a little bit more individually. If they have. The yeah, time. that's, a, that's a great point. And, and to your point, I think I like what you just said. A coach would much rather hear from the student themselves versus the parent first. Now, if the student feels that he or she isn't being heard, then of course, as a parent step in, but always encourage uh, your student to talk to the coach themselves first. I know they really appreciate that self-advocacy. So that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, um, yeah fun times. So anyway, um, we had some really great news this week. Um, do you want to share, Lisa? Yeah, it's really exciting. And I'd heard some buzzings of it a couple of weeks ago. I think this may be the second round of emails that went out, but um, the BAA, for whatever reason, um, I, I guess hasn't reached capacity for, for the Boston Marathon for this October and has been in little bits and groups sending out invitations to runners who miss the cutoff. So just to explain again, for people who may not be familiar, um, there is a qualifying time for each gender and age group for Boston Marathon. Um, so let's say for very young guys, the fastest time um, up to age 34 guys, it's a three hour, you have to run a three hour marathon. So let's say you run a 258 marathon, great, you know, you've qualified for Boston, but then you go to, to, to register and uh, registrants are allowed in based on the, the, basically the amount that they qualified by. And if the race fills up um, quickly, then there may be people who qualified, but didn't get in through the registration process. And this year, the buffer was really big. It was over seven minutes. So you may have had um, a qualifying time, but if you didn't qualify by at least seven and a half minutes, you actually didn't get in. And it was frustrating for a lot of people this year because the field was reduced and we have runners who had qualified by pretty healthy margin, you know, five, six minutes who didn't get in because they missed it by that, that extra cutoff by at least a minute or two. And some were seconds and some we've had on our podcast before and we've highlighted them. Um, and it was really frustrating for people too, who a lot of runners who've worked really, really hard over the years and, and uh, finally, uh, you know, uh, qualified for Boston and may have been in for 2020 and then 2020 was canceled. And then when they reapplied for 2021, missed that cutoff. So what has happened in the last uh, few weeks is uh, groups of runners have been getting emails saying you're now invited to, to register. Um, you know, this is, it seems like they're sending them out in order of, um, you know, qualifying time. So let's say you miss that buffer by 10 seconds. Now you're having an opportunity to register. So we have at least three or four runners that we know of um, that got that email yesterday. And they, you know, all along had been assuming they weren't going to be running Boston. They may have signed up for the virtual Boston or a different marathon or some just said, never mind, I'm not going to run a marathon. And now we are 
are we seven weeks out? And now they got an invitation to register for Boston. And so, um, you know, if, uh, Conroy Zian is one of our, our, our local friends who we had on the podcast many episodes ago that talked about how long he had worked, um, you know, to, to qualify for Boston and, uh, and have finally gotten in and then he had missed the cutoff and he is now, um, now, now going to Boston. So we have several other runners that's happened to. So for us, that's so exciting. I, you know, wish all of the runners who had quote unquote missed the cutoff were able to, to be included um, and, and now, now go to Boston. But it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I think this is happening because of lower uh, registration and whether that's lower um, acceptance of charity bibs by those charities that have been given charity bibs. We know that there's been a lower uh, registration for charity bibs. So maybe some of those bibs have come back to the BAA and they're giving them to qualified runners or um, international runners I know who have switched from the, the in-person to the virtual because they're worried about getting into the country or just runners in general with the spike in the Delta variant who are worried about traveling and then, and then running in a large group um, that are deciding to switch from the in-person to virtual. So whatever combination of spots opening up, um, I, I'm really happy. We're, we're really happy to see the BAA reaching out to those who just missed that cutoff and giving them the opportunity now. Yeah, it's so exciting. I mean, it's the runners that we um, heard of personally, the runners we coach, um, in addition to Conroy, um, our Rod Vieira, who was also um, an, a guest on our podcast last year, and Lisa White, who we coach. So it was just really thrilling to hear the news. Uh, you mentioned Conroy, you know, he was on our podcast twice, the first time talking about how he qualified and, and then obviously wasn't able to race in 2020. And then the second time, most recently, when he talked about his disappointment and we had him on to talk about that. And so what, what a story. I mean, we never could have predicted that he would have received an invitation. And uh, wow. So uh, Godspeed all those people who got invitations and get in that hotel and getting a decent rate, but hopefully that will work out too. Um, hotel rooms are ridiculously, ridiculously priced for the weekend, but hopefully um, with supply and demand, that price will come down a little bit, but um, we're just really, really thrilled. And it was just wonderful news to receive yesterday. So speaking of Boston, we have a great guest this week. Um, Lisa, uh, you wanna talk about who is coming on the podcast next? Yeah, so um, one of the runners that we coach, um, who has also been a guest on our podcast, we have a lot of guests on our podcast, we are, we are actually speaking of which coming up on our 100th episode. So stay tuned for our um, exciting 100, 100th episode that's coming up. That's really exciting to us. But so we've had a lot of guests on our podcast over the years. And one of the guests that we had not too long ago um, was Lori Rice, who's a, a rabbi. And we had her on our clergy episode. Um, you're talking about our clergy Great episode, episode with Christine Dunn. Lori, yep, yep, exactly. Lori is an extremely talented runner um, herself. She's actually um, subsequently qualified for Boston and um, we'll be running again. Um, we'll be running uh, this fall for Boston, but as a charity runner. Um, she had originally signed up for Boston. That's how we sort of met her was when she first signed up to run Boston as a charity runner with the Heather Abbott Foundation. And Heather Abbott was one of the spectators that was gravely injured on um, and on April 15, 2013, uh, when there were the explosions at the finish line. And um, she was there just to observe and, you know, one of the really important spectators that make Boston so special. And she ended up having to have um, a limb amputated and subsequent to that started a foundation to help others who um, are in need of specialty prosthetics. And Lori was part of that team. So we learned about Heather and about her team from Lori. And Lori was actually the number one fundraiser for 2020 for that team. And sadly, we all know what happened with 2020 and none of those charity runners who worked so hard to raise funds for such an important cause got to actually run in person. Luckily, they got bibs again for this year and they offered them to those runners. And all of the entire the entire team for this year, uh, except for one person, I believe, are people who were supposed to run 2020 for the Heather, Heather Abbott Foundation. Um, and and uh, you know, Lori very kindly connected us to Heather, so we could hear her story and um, you know learn 
we we experienced uh, the 2013 race from a runner perspective, and we weren't actually we were near the finish line, but we weren't at the finish line um, when the explosions went off. And while we're certainly we were affected by it, we were nowhere near as affected as as she was and the other people who were injured on that day and their lives were changed so it's, it was really we were really interested in talking to heather and um not only hearing about her experience but what she's done subsequent to that and how she has turned it around and made it such a positive um a positive experience and really a positive trajectory to her life following that really tragic experience yeah she really is uh such just embodies strength and resilience and uh Speaking of Lori, we we will put in our show notes a link to Lori's fundraising page because that that those funds go directly to support those who can't afford prosthesis. And Heather explains um, how expensive that is and why that's an important cause to her. And and certainly all of us want to see those who who want to be able to do the things they could do previously have prosthesis for for different reasons, such as running. Um, in Heather's case, stand-up paddle boarding. She has a prosthesis for that. And um, wearing regular everyday heels. activities. Wearing high heels. Very cost prohibitive. Yes, wearing high heels. I love that. She has one for wearing high heels, as she should. So but also to um, how a, a corporation could book Heather to speak. Um, that's something she does. She does a lot of corporate speaking. And now that things are opening up, um, that's if you work for a company that brings in speakers, she would be an excellent speaker. And also to Lori's fundraising page, if there's anyone out there that would like to uh, make a donation uh, to the Heather Abbott Foundation through Lori, uh, that would be wonderful. I know that would be much appreciated. And Lisa, also just um, hearing Heather talk, you know, you and I have always supported um, charity bibs. It's, it's an important part of Boston. And certainly when we, we talk to Dave, um, Dave about charity and how it's such an important element to the Boston Marathon, we understand even more why it's just part of the fabric of the Boston Marathon. But hearing from Heather firsthand and how she started this charity and, and why the Boston Marathon is so important to um, be able to fund her charity and her mission, it really, it really struck me like I hope those who are listening, who who feel that the charity takes so charity bibs take away from others will hear this and remember that it's there, this is what the Boston Marathon is about. And it's just so important to embrace this as much as we embrace Boston and the challenge of getting in and the race itself, the charity component is just as important. And, and Heather certainly puts a face and a name to that. That's really well said. I know there is a lot of, there are a lot of people who think there should be fewer charity spots and more spots for, for qualified runners. And, um, you know, in an ideal world, there'll be, there would be both, but you're absolutely right. I think after talking to Heather, we really see the importance of, of, of having those charity bibs in that part of the marathon. And, and frankly, that's what makes Boston so special is that it is, it's, it's more than just a race. Yeah, well said. So stay tuned for Heather's interview and then stay tuned, stay with us for next week when we record our 100th episode. And we just want to thank everyone for listening and putting up with us for 100 episodes. We get such great feedback from people um, that we see in person and it still shocks us that people listen and we're so grateful to have this platform and be able to share our love of running in Boston specifically and, and provide coaching tips and bring on these incredible guests. And we're so grateful to all of the guests who've been willing to share their stories and then to all of the listeners. And next week we will celebrate 100 episodes, which is really hard to believe, Lisa. And I just love that we have this time together every week. It just brings such a smile to my face. I'm so grateful for you. And I just can't believe we're here doing this. So um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't make a pitch. We would so appreciate if you haven't done so yet, if you could please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to your podcast because Apple Podcasts changes algorithm yet again. And the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And we would love to grow this thing a little bit more and, and to do that and to be able to provide even better content. Uh, yeah, we just need a little bit more uh, reviews to get more listeners. But uh, to those who listen regularly, thank you. We do not take that for granted. And we so appreciate all of you. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye.
We wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to thank our friends at RNJ Sports for their support. RNJ is our go-to expert on all things running gear related, particularly running shoes. If you've struggled with finding the right shoes, the staff at RNJ can help solve just about any problem or issue. As a small locally owned business, RNJ is heavily involved in and supportive of the local running community. They get runners. They are runners. RNJ has been an enthusiastic supporter of our podcast and our training programs, including our Montgomery County Public Schools program. We are so appreciative of their support. Check them out online at rnj, that's rnjsports.com. Heather Abbott, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We're so happy to have you join us today. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we are fortunate enough to have been put in touch with you by one of our runners that we coach, Lori Rice, who we actually featured on an earlier podcast. Um, and Lori is a member of your team for the Boston Marathon. And um, she was kind enough to put us in touch with you. And um, we are a Boston Marathon podcast. We cover all sorts of topics, but um, your story resonates really, um, really deeply with us. Um, as you know, the two of us have run many, many Boston marathons, including um, 2013. So we were, you know, we were there and, um, you know, experienced that the, the horrors of that day. And you obviously experienced them um, much more, much more um, intensely than we did. So, um, so we, you know, again, appreciate you sh- joining us and sharing your story, but we want to kind of back up and start with um, prior to April 15th, 2013, kind of tell us about your life, what you were doing, where you were living, um, and kind of how you got to the Boston Marathon that day. Um, well, I was uh, living in Newport, Rhode Island, and I was working as an HR manager. Um, and I was at the Boston Marathon in 2013. Um, because it was sort of a tradition for me to go there with a group of friends each year. Um, We would take the day off from work and take the train up to Boston, go to Fenway and see the game, and then walk over to the finish line and catch the um, charity runners coming in and uh, and meet other friends of ours that lived in the city at a, a restaurant near the finish line. So that's what I was up to that day. And had you, um, you know, you said it was a tradition to come up and watch. Had you ever, or were you a runner yourself? Did you, I mean, had you run uh, any races or, or marathons? No, I was not a runner. I ran occasionally for exercise. I ran a 5K once, but um, you would not catch me out there on a marathon. Right. <laughs> now well, <we're> the, <laughs> the spectators are, are part of the appeal of Boston and what makes Boston so special. So um, just being a, a spectator um, is so, you know, such a vital part of the Boston Marathon. So we thank you for that. So, um, so kind of walk us through, through April 15th, you, you know, you said you meet at a restaurant and um, kind of tell us, tell us what happened that day. Well, that day I had, um, it started out as planned. I went up on the, on the train to Boston with a group of friends. We saw the Red Sox play and they were losing (laughs) and we decided to leave the game a little bit early and walk over to the finish line and um, because the city is so crowded that day and there are streets are blocked off and it's kind of chaotic my group of seven got split up on the walk over to the finish line and um, four friends made it over first and texted the three of us uh, that lagged behind to let us, let us know that they were inside a restaurant called Forum and to meet them in there. And, and we had been there before, right on Boylston, just before the finish line. Um, so when we finally got up to uh, Forum, we were just about to walk inside when I heard the first explosion. And I can remember turning to my right and, and seeing the smoke in the air and um, you know, kind of, of course, wondering what was happening. But before I really had a, a chance to even say anything to, to my friend next to me, uh, the second explosion occurred a few feet away from where I was standing. And the next thing I knew, I had been catapulted through the air, um, through the open doors of the restaurant forum, and was had landed on the ground. Um, so when I kind of came to, um, I saw a lot of smoke, um, a lot of uh, glass shattered and, and blood on the floor. People were 
running away from the direction of the street and, and screaming. It was really chaotic. And I shortly realized that I was, I was in tremendous pain. My foot was um, really hurting me. I felt like it was on fire. And I knew I couldn't stand up and run. And, and people were running towards the back of the restaurant because nobody knew if there was going to be a third explosion. Um, I was very lucky that uh, I, started, I started to call out for help. And I can remember thinking, you know, who's going to help me? People are running for their lives right now. Um, but a woman did hear me and stopped. And, and she, um, I remember her coming over and, and taking a look at my foot and, and saying she, I wasn't going to be able to walk and she was going to go get her husband to help carry me out. And I was really hoping she came back <laughs> and, and she did. And the two of them helped me get out uh, to the back of the restaurant where, where a crowd had gathered and my friends had um, kind of counted each other. And, and one of them actually had come back into the restaurant looking for me. Um, and I, I was put on the ground um, and a doctor and a nurse happened to be in the crowd and were directing one of my friends to take uh, his belt off and, and, and let them use it as a tourniquet for my leg. And, and that probably saved my life because I was losing so much blood. Um, eventually, it felt like forever, but I'm, I'm sure it wasn't very long. An ambulance came and um, took me to the hospital. How were your friends? Like, what, were, were your friends okay? Was anybody else injured in your group of friends? They weren't. Um, the four who were inside weren't injured at all. Um, and the, the other two who were standing next to me um, strangely weren't injured either. Um, it was sort of random who was injured, um, just based on where the shrapnel landed or flew. And um, it, it did turn out, though, that I had another friend who I planned to meet that day um, at Forum who was standing not too far from where I was. I, I didn't know at the time, but she happened to be injured and also lost her leg. Wow. And, and what was going through your mind in those first, you know, few minutes? Did you think, you know, was this, did you immediately think it was somebody who had planted something? Did you think something had gone, you know, I mean, I guess with the second one, you probably then processed that this was something nefarious, but what was going through your mind those first, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes until you were put into the ambulance and taken away? Um, I don't think I really um, thought about what exactly it was. I, I did know that it was probably something not very good going on. Um, and I really was just worried about, about getting, getting to a hospital. Um, but it, it was really hard to, to even think about anything else because, you know, it, it just wasn't something I was expecting to happen. And, and you know, I could tell by the, I, I didn't look at my foot myself, but I could tell um, by the looks on the faces of people who did, did see it, that it was pretty bad. So I was really concentrating on, on making sure I got to a hospital quickly. And what about your family? Did you, did, you know, did you have family reaching out to you that you knew you were there and were people looking for you and, and reaching out to find out if, you know, if you were okay? When I was in the ambulance, um, the, the only telephone number I memorized by heart was um, the one in the house where I grew up. And my parents still lived there at the time. So um, I asked the, the, one of the people in the ambulance uh, with me to, to call my mom and tell her. Um, so, so she knew right away and, uh, and, and then she and my dad immediately came up to Boston. Uh, but from what I understand, uh, the friends I was with that day were getting lots of calls and, and texts and if they could get them, because I think the cell lines were, were all clogged up. <laughs> um, but yeah, people were, were trying to find out if, if all of us were okay. So do you remember the details after you arrived at the hospital in the ambulance? What's your memory like? Some, for some people, for example, after going through a trauma, they remember everything, while for other people, they block it out. How about you? Do you remember the events when you arrived at the hospital? And can you talk to us kind of about what, what that looked like? Uh, well, when I was brought to the hospital, I was immediately taken into, taken into the OR. Um, I remember, you know, a doctor meeting meeting us at the front um, and just being put on an IV and given anesthesia right away. So um, it, it wasn't long before I was in surgery. And 
then when I came out, um, my mom was there and my friends that I had been with that day had, were all still there. Um, they stayed for several days after that um, in, the, in their same clothes they were wearing uh, at the time it happened. And they were, doctors were really trying to assess the damage to my foot and whether or not they would be able to salvage it. So you had to make a really difficult decision while still undergoing a shock of what had happened. Um, tell us a little bit about that decision and how you were able to process and, and make that decision. Um, well, yeah, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a, much of a decision, um, although I had hoped it would be. <laughs> um, after uh, four surgeries um, over the course of uh, a few days, um, the team of doctors that had, had seen my injuries uh, came in and, and told me, you know, what my options were. And basically, I, they could try to salvage the leg and there was no guarantee that they, that they would be able to do that. Um, there could be a period of time they, they attempted to do it and then discover that really they would have to amputate it later on. Um, and even if they did salvage it, they said that it would be, um, I would have to have my ankle fused. Um, they were just, I mean, my foot was uh, complete, the bones were completely shattered and my heel was completely blown off. So they would have to try to reconstruct it the best they could. Um, I would only be able to wear sneakers. Uh, they said I wouldn't be able to walk for a long period of time at all. Um, definitely never run uh, or do anything with any sort of high, high activity. Um, and that I may, I may need crutches or some sort of assistive device uh, occasionally in, in order to walk. Or I could have my leg amputated um, and wear a prosthesis. Uh, so, um, you know, neither choices were exactly uh, good ones. But no, uh, after I, <laughs> I, I did, you know, I, I asked the doctor, I had a really great surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And um, I said, if, if it were you, what would you do? <laughs> and I, I know of a lot of other amputees that uh, had to make similar decisions, uh, didn't get real direct answers to that question. But he said, if it were me, I would get the prosthesis. I would wear the prosthesis. And he told me, you know, all about all the things I'd be able to do with one. And um, he and others in the hospital arranged for me to meet um, lots of different amputees in order to make sure that you know, to, to understand what he was, what he was, um, the choice I was given and, and what I'd be able to do. Wow. Bedside manner matters, right? I mean, just having that conversation and the way he presented it made it, in your words, not as difficult of a decision because he provided you with honest information and people to talk to. Absolutely. Um, the hospital arranged for um, veterans to come in from all over the country, um, those who had lost limbs in Iraq and Afghanistan, to talk to, to those of us who were facing decisions like mine or had immediately had limbs amputated um, shortly after the bombing. And um, just to be able to talk to them and, and see how they walked and, and hear about all the different things they were able to do was extremely, extremely helpful. Heather, you mentioned that there, you know, you and the others so were there others in the hospital with you that had been through um, the same experience and were also now facing the same decisions? Did you get to meet those people and connect with them? Uh, at that time, they, they were. Um, at that time, I didn't know them. I knew we were all in different hospitals. Um, but eventually, we all ended up at the same uh, rehab hospital, um, somewhere around uh, two weeks after the bombing, two to three weeks, uh, we were, we were all pretty much there. And so we, we saw each other more at that point. And then of course, um, the, the woman that I knew who I wasn't with that day, um, but was close, standing close to me when the second explosion occurred, um, had also lost her limb. And so, um, I did know her and, um, she was at a different hospital initially, but we connected once we were at the rehab facility. So talk to us a little bit about the rehab once you made that decision and, um, you know, how does that, how does that work? How does the, you know, the adjustment to a prosthesis, how does that, how long does that take? What does that look like first physically, but then also mentally? 
Well, surprisingly, it it didn't take very long um, before I was up and walking on a prosthesis on my own. So, um, I my leg was amputated on uh, I think April 21st, um, a few days after the bombing, and I was walking on my own by the 4th of July. Um, wow. I had to be. Yeah, I was in the rehab hospital uh, as an inpatient for a couple weeks. Um, and then I had to do some outpatient therapy at home. Um, by the first week in June, I was fitted for my first prosthesis, and I practiced in in outpatient physical therapy, um, learning to walk on it, and and then on my own with two crutches, one crutch, and a cane, and then eventually, um, without without any other assistive devices, until about the fourth of July when I was finally able to be out and about doing my own doing things on my own again. So I remember when I went to outpatient physical therapy in the beginning of June, uh, a woman walked in who had just broken her leg. And the physical therapist said to me, you're going to be walking before she is. And I, I couldn't believe that, but it was true. <laughs> it was. So um, it was pretty amazing how quickly, you know, I was able to to get my independence back, which was one of my biggest concerns. That's amazing. And at what point were you given more than one prosthesis? Because um, it's our understanding that you you use a couple of different ones for different purposes. Yeah. Um, well, I had uh, I had one for basic, just for walking um, initially, and then um, probably about six months after that, I had um, a high heel prosthesis um, that looked realistic, and, and I was able to wear um, four inch high heel shoes with. Um, I had a prosthesis that was uh, intended for running. And then I also had another one that I could wear in the water for stand-up paddleboarding. Yeah, and the importance of having those different prostheses to do what you love to do, whether that's wear high heels or go in the water and stand up paddleboard or go out for your run, um, seems like it was kind of the impetus for you to start um, the Heather Abbott Foundation. So tell us how, how that started and kind of where, where it's gone over the years and, um, and what it's been able to do as a result of, of your work. Yeah, um, you know, I, I was very lucky to be able to have um, all of those different types of prosthesis to do things that I wanted to be able to do. Um, and, and in large part, that was because of the Boston One Fund and uh, all the generous people who donated to it um, because it, it did cover medical expenses like prosthesis for those of us who were injured in the bombing um, and charitable organizations that heard, you know, knew about what happened that reached out um, that I otherwise, you know, would have had to research on my own or find them on my own um, if I had been injured in a, in a different way that wasn't so public. So I, I did really appreciate that. And I recognized it when I started to meet other amputees who were injured in, in much more private ways, like a, a motorcycle accident or um, something like that. And it, it really struck me when I had a, a young girl reach out to me um, at the time who was graduating high school. And she had seen a, a special that was done on my high heel prosthesis on CNN. And she said that um, she wanted me to know that she had been an amputee um, almost since birth, uh, that she had had a um, deformation in, in one of her limbs that caused an amputation uh, before she was a year old. And she had always wanted a realistic looking prosthesis. And um, well, she started off by telling me if, I, if she could help me in any way, she'd be happy to. <laughs> but she also asked me about, about my realistic looking prosthesis because it was something that she had always wanted. And she told me that uh, she was gonna be graduating and her prom was coming up and she really wanted to wear um, a realistic looking prosthesis to her prom. So she was asking me where I got it and um, how much it cost. Uh, because health insurance typically doesn't cover uh, more than one basic prosthesis um, that meets someone's minimum needs. Um, so when I told her the tens of thousands of dollars that it cost, um, she said, well, I guess I could ask my parents for that as a graduation present or or my first year of college. <laughs> and, uh, and she was right, you know, that's how much it would cost. Uh, that prosthesis would cost a, a year's worth of college. And it just made me really realize how 
it must feel to not be able to have those options. And, and that was what really made me want to start the foundation to be able to provide that for people who, who are in circumstances like she is, which is most people. That's really a testament to your character because there's many people that would hear the, her story and say, oh, I'd really like to donate somewhere to support people who need prosthesis. But in your case, you actually went uh, several steps above that and started a foundation. That's truly a testament to your character. So tell us about your foundation and how people can support it and, and some of the things that you do to support. Thank you. Um, so the foundation was started at the end of 2014 and um, we have given prospect devices to um, individuals between the ages of five and uh, 63 <laughs> uh, all over the country. Um, and we provide uh, prosthesis for any type of activity that somebody would like where they can't, you know, they can't have it covered by their health insurance or if they don't have health insurance that will cover it at all or, or only a small portion. So we've given out um, high heel prostheses, um, running prostheses, uh, snowboarding prostheses, uh, microprocessor knees, all, all sorts of things that uh, people struggle with um, because of insurance reasons typically. And um, it's, it's just been an amazing experience. Uh, we've been really, have really been able to help a lot of people. Um, and I'm excited to, I'm excited that we're still around um, this many years later. <laughs> Heather, how do people find, do they um, apply through through your foundation and then are they selected? Is that how the process works? Yeah, um, our website is heatherabbottfoundation.org um, and there is a link to fill out an application on the website. Um, we get tons of applications uh, and the board uh, has a real difficult time determining which fit best with our mission and, and our budget for the year. Um, but we try to provide as many as we're able um, in each each fiscal year. And part of the way that you raise funds um, relevant to our podcast is uh, the Boston Marathon team that you have. So you have a, a charity team for the Boston Marathon. And how many years have you had a team for the marathon? Uh, yeah, but the Boston Marathon is our, our main fundraiser. Uh, we are lucky enough to have um, been given invitationals by the Boston Athletic Association each year uh, to allow runners to apply for them and then run the Boston Marathon and raise money on behalf of the foundation. Um, we've had uh, a, a team every year uh, since starting in 2015. Um, and our 2020 team actually raised the most money to date. Uh, and, and Lori Rice, the uh, runner that, that you mentioned earlier on the team, is our top fundraiser and has just done such an amazing job. Uh, and it was just so sad when the team was not able to run in 2020. <laughs> so we are really, really looking forward to seeing them cross the finish line uh, in October this year. So, so are we, and so were the runners from 2020, were they given the opportunity then to have a 2021 bib, the ones for your team that had fundraised? Our team did, did give them that opportunity, yeah. And are all of them, are all of them coming back? Um, not all of them. We, unfortunately, we didn't receive as many invitationals uh, for 2021 as we did in 2020, but um, not all of the team members were planning to, to come back so we have a, a team of all 2020 runners except for one. Okay, but you got it. took on an additional runner for, for 2020. Yeah. yeah, everybody from 2020 who wanted to run was able to. Have you started recruiting for 2022 yet or do you not have that information from the BAA yet? We haven't started yet. Um, we, that, we will be doing that shortly after the, the marathon in October because the next one is scheduled to take place in April of 2022. So we'll be we'll be starting our application process um, shortly after the 2021 marathon concludes. Lisa, I was just going to say the same thing. We'll put in our show notes a link to Lori's fundraising page because she is one of our runners. And then we will also um, put in a link um, once that is available for those who are interested um, in 
applying for a bid for 2022 and fundraising because it's just it sounds like a wonderful opportunity to su directly support your mission. So I have a question about um, the people who um, helped you. I read an article um, that you have stayed in touch with them. Can you talk a little bit about who the who they were and your relationship with them? Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, actually a group of people that initially discovered me on the ground um, who had been at a fundraiser that was taking place um, on the day of bombing at the Forum Restaurant. And the fundraiser was for the Joe Andrewsy Foundation. Uh, Joe Andrewsy is a former New England Patriots football player um, who started a foundation with his wife uh, that assists cancer patients um, after he uh, became a cancer survivor. And so um, that individuals from that, that group uh, discovered me on the ground. And um, the woman who, who was helping me and, and got her husband to help me um, eventually became friends of mine. Um, when, uh, when they helped me out, um, they said that they, you know, they waited with me until the ambulance came and then the ambulance door shut and, and the ambulance wouldn't let anybody come with me at all because it was too full of injured people. They couldn't fit any, they couldn't fit any friends of mine or anyone for that matter. Um, but they said they, you know, how are we going to know what happened to this woman? Um, but the, the man that, uh, in that couple, um, his name's Matt and his wife is Aaron. Um, Matt also happened to be a former New England Patriots football player. Um, so he was interviewed shortly after the bombing, uh, and asked about his experience that day. And he talked about uh, the woman he, he and his wife helped. And uh, somebody that I knew heard the story and said, it sounds like he's talking about Heather and, and reached out to him on social media and, and eventually we connected. So they, they did come to visit me in the hospital um, and I got to meet them and thank them in person. Um, they are amazing people. Um, you know, I oftentimes wonder if I had been in their position that day, if I would have stopped or if I would have kept running, um, I'm really glad that they stopped. <laughs> and uh, and we, we keep in touch. And prior to uh, 2020, we saw each other every year on April 15th um, on Boylston Street. Um, but I'm sure I will see them in October this year. A little, little change of timing, but um, it'll be good to see them again. Speaking of seeing them again and, and, you know, April 15th of every year, do you go back and watch the, the marathon still? I do um, because, because we have the team running, um, you know, where I'm there cheering on the team. And, and in fact, the year after the bombing in 2014, Erin Chatham, um, the woman who, who saved me, ran the marathon. Um, it was her first marathon. And I actually uh, dusted off my running leg and ran the last half mile with her. Um, so I've, I've been back every year since, and you know, it, it was always a fun experience for me before 2013, and, and it's been even better since then. I think it's really also a testament to your strength that you not only ran a half mile a year after the bombings, physically, but also mentally. So what is it that got you through to a point that you were able to not only run, but, but do it and enjoy it in the very place that where you suffered greatly. So how, what advice do you have for people who have been through trauma? Because I mean, what you did is really amazing given what happened and how you turn it around and, and, and made it in, back into a fun experience as you just mentioned. Thank you. I mean, I, I was very lucky that I had um, a lot of support. Um, the friends who were with me that day and other friends, of course, uh, and family were extremely supportive, have um, supported the foundation and, and been in Boston with me every year for the marathon. Um, I also had a very unique um, support system in, by way of the other amputees from the bombing. Um, there are 17 of us all together. So, you know, having gone through this experience with, with them, you know, 16 other people who know, you know, exactly what it was like, um, was also, I think, very, very helpful in, in my recovery process. So, you know, I think being able to um, 
speak with individuals who have been through what you've been through when you've had, had a traumatic experience is, is really helpful. And I think that has a lot to do with um, how I had a successful recovery. Yeah, that's, that's great advice and really speaks to the power of community and connection and, and what you're providing now for people who are, you know, in similar, similar situations. Um, so tell us just so we can wrap it up and close it out. What, what are you doing now? We know, um, you know, in addition to your professional job and, and the foundation that you're a peer counselor, um, what, what does your life look like now? What are you, what are you doing now? I'm still working for the same company that I worked for uh, prior to the bombing um, in HR. And um, up until recently, I was working part-time. I was running the foundation and doing a lot of public speaking all over the country. Um, since, since COVID hit, my public speaking uh, dwindled a bit. So I have gone back to work full-time and, um, and I'm still um, running the foundation with the, the group who helped me stand it up. Uh, we've got a great board that's really committed to um, our success and, and growing as, as much as we can to help as many amputees as we can. So if somebody's interested in having you publicly speak, how does that work? Um, I do work for an agency that um, is uh, on my website. Um, so it's called the American Program Bureau and um, it typically uh, people are able to reach out to them and they can, they can connect us. That's great. Well, we're going to put all of the links in our show notes and make sure everyone knows how, how to find you. Um, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. And we really want to give a shout out to Lori for connecting us to you and um, all the great work that, that you're doing. And like we said, this is, a, you know, something that's an event that's that's near and dear to our hearts and that we've seen the, the kind of the aftermath and are in awe of you, how you really turned it into something so positive and um, supportive for the community. So we're looking forward to being back in Boston in October and we hope that we'll get to see you along the course somewhere. Um, but thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing. And um, and really, again, just um, thanks for sharing your story with us and, and your words of advice to our listeners. Thanks very much. Have a great day, Heather. Thanks again. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.